0: Hello, hello, everybody. We're here, finally, Season 2, Episode 1 of 1000 Voices. And we've got so many good, good inspirational stories and interviews coming up for you this season. We're going to kick things off right. And our first guest in the second season is Professor Carleen Furman. Professor Carleen Furman is a social researcher who has developed a framework called the Contextual Safeguarding Framework. And in this interview, we talk about why it's so important to take into account context when dealing with young people, not only looking at their family structure, but looking at all of these different institutions, how they interact and how they impact young people's lives. In this interview, Professor Carleen Furman talks about her own upbringing, that context and how that's impacted the person that she is today, and opens up in a very vulnerable manner about things she's been through growing up as a child and in more recent years. She also shares with us a very candid story of a young person that was failed by the system and how things could have been different if context was taken into account. And you don't necessarily have to be involved in any kind of child safeguarding practice in order to use this knowledge. This framework can be modified and applied to all sorts of different relationships and areas in your life. Context is very key as Professor Carleen Furman helps us to understand in this interview. So stay tuned. Get ready to learn and be ready to be inspired by this story. But that's that for now. This is 1000 Voices in here. We have Professor Carleen Furman. Hello, hello. How are you doing today, Carleen?
1: I'm good, thank you. How
0: are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. And uh, very excited to get you on the podcast. Actually, you know, I was looking at your profile love the work that you're doing i'm thinking wow that would be so cool to get you on um and to understand a bit more about you you know and where you come from and a bit more about the work you're doing and everything so yeah thank you for coming on much much appreciated
1: no worries thanks for having me
0: yeah it's all good so you know to start off with we always like to take it back to talk about you know upbringing and that kind of thing um for someone like yourself you know you're you've what would you even say pioneered created this uh, contextual safeguarding framework. And it'd be interesting just to get a bit of context for yourself, you know, what your upbringing was like in um, your childhood. So just to start off with, could you start off by just painting a picture uh, for what your childhood and your upbringing looked like?
1: Sure. Um, so I'm the eldest of four children um, I have three brothers. And they're five years younger than me, six years younger than me, and eight years younger than me. So it was quite a big age gap and then they all came along and um, afterwards we grew up in North London and um, so first Kilburn then Edmonton so we've always kind of been North London um, people and I still live in North London uh, now um, and we were brought up by our parents my dad passed away when I was 14 so then it was just my mum and me and my brothers um, and we're a really close family uh, we still spend a lot of time with each other and we still live really near each other when I moved out of home I moved up the road and stayed on the road for a long time. So, uh, yeah, really close family. Um, raised in a Catholic home, went to Catholic primary schools and secondary schools, um, loved school, still in touch with school friends now. In fact, I'm seeing some at the weekend. Um, and had a really close-knit kind of church community as well um, in my early childhood. So all Sunday was spent with people from our church in parks in the summer and that, and that type of thing. So yeah, um, love learning, love debating, um, and I kind of school really carried me through um, my childhood, particularly when um, I was bereaved. Um, my history teacher in particular was really important to me and kind of got me through those times, so yeah, school was a good outlet.
0: That's great, and under the, the bereavement, so very sorry to hear about that, um, quite a tough thing to go through as a young person. Without going into details as to what specifically happened, how would you say that affected you then and is it do, do those effects still carry on until now into your adulthood life?
1: Yeah I mean I think it's always difficult to lose somebody, somebody that's important to you and so um, experience, I think once you experience a tragedy you're more open to the idea that bad things happen I so it kind of it takes away the idea that bad things don't happen um, to you, so I often approach things with a kind of a worst-case scenario, and have to talk myself out of that worst-case scenario. Um, and I think that's just that's just a natural kind of consequence of some of those types of things happening. Um, but it also meant that we were really bonded as a group of siblings, and um, with my mum as well, and everything that she did to kind of keep family life going. Um, and I, I guess I also kind of just carry through the idea that nothing's guaranteed really and you can't really rely on things, other people and other things to kind of carry you carry you through necessarily. So, um, And then I bought a house really early when I was kind of working and I wanted to kind of establish a life for myself independently. Um, so all those things influenced me. But I think one of the biggest lessons I probably learned, which links to the work I now do, is the importance of community and the relevance of contexts for your safety and your development. So there was me and three brothers and we all experienced that bereavement differently and it impacted us differently because even though we were all living in the same family, we had different groups of friends, we were in different schools, we had different interactions with people like the police and teachers and, and my experiences of all of those things were relatively positive. In terms of school, for example, or non-existent in terms of the police. I was a young woman, so I didn't really get that much hassle. Um, whereas my brothers experienced policing really differently in London, and some of them had very difficult times in schools. And and when you when those contexts become fractured, um, and you're going through something painful um, in your personal life, um, we're not having an equal experience. So it Definitely. It definitely meant that I, I don't buy into the idea that if I can do it anyone can do it type narrative like you just dust yourself off and you work hard like I got to where I am because we had a really solid fam- group of families around us in the church that carried my mum through a difficult time we had I was in a really supportive school environment um, and there were a number of factors that meant that my mum was in a position to be able to get us through that and if those things hadn't been in place um it would have probably been a lot a lot more difficult for me so i think some people might look at the story and think Oh well she went through a difficult time and she's done really well so going through difficulties isn't a reason for things going wrong that's just not how i see it i i went through a difficult time and i was in a number of a number of contexts that meant that, that didn't have a kind of lasting negative effect on my of opportunities and my experiences and that wouldn't be the same for
0: everybody we're going to get into the contextual um, safeguarding in a in a bit anyways but it's very interesting to hear you talk about your own context and i'm a massive believer in context being everything as well Um, no two things are if i wouldn't maybe i wouldn't say never but very very rarely the exact same thing Um, people have their own lived experiences have their own things going on so if, if you and your family you very young you've got a bereavement in your family Um, and you know that's it's it's gonna have play a massive massive role in your life for that period of time Um, and context is everything I think that when we're coming to things like you mentioned uh, schooling uh, policing etc and those are just two institutions but all of these different institutions and societies we live in I feel that need to take a very much um, a not a one shoe fits all sort of approach and also quite a human approach to people as well because everyone's context is different um, and not only just context as well I feel like everybody's, everybody's mentality is real different we're unique in our own specific ways and what might affect one person one way is going to affect someone else completely different what might be me dropping my burger on the floor cool that's going to hurt me that could hurt someone a hell of a lot more context um, pain is very relative I feel um, so It's very interesting to hear you talk about you know your context and your upbringing like that as well uh, we've actually just still in the childhood piece actually what's your happiest childhood memory?
1: oh that would probably be well it's difficult I've got two um, Christmas time as a child I loved and I still love it now because I loved it as a child it's just magical time where we used to go and stay with my mum's parents my grandparents and um, uh, from Christmas Eve through to the day after Boxing Day and they had quite a large house outside of London, which actually wasn't, it was only about half an hour's drive on the M25, but to me it felt like we were going into the countryside and we were going to this kind of special house where all my cousins went as well and we all stayed there for these three days and we had the most amazing food and everyone was having such a good time. So all of us love Christmas um because we just remember that, that period of time where and my grandparents were quite young when i was a child so um so yeah they had the energy to kind of cook and entertain us and that was always lovely um and the other thing i loved about childhood was camping so we used to camp every summer that was kind of my mum's way of guaranteeing us a summer holiday even though we didn't have lots of money she bought a tent saved up and bought a really nice tent and then we could go away every summer and camp and ride our bikes and um that was also brilliant and again we still camp now and my brothers have tents and we you know we all go camping as a family so i guess that, yeah the things that i love most about childhood I tried to carry through for my own child now
0: that's great do you have a favorite christmas christmas movie
1: Oh gosh, I think that's such a hard question, but probably A Muppet's Christmas Carol.
0: I haven't even watched it.
1: (laughs) Oh, you're missing out. It's great.
0: I'll check it out actually. Cool. All right. And what were your early career ambitions when you were young?
1: Uh, so I initially or well, they've changed all the time I went through a phase of wanting to be a lawyer when I was in school, changed my mind to a historian, at one point I wanted to be a nun and actually did visit a nunnery and um, like was really quite serious about that but then changed my mind so I went through lots of um, thoughts and then I kind of settled for a good while on journalism um, and chose to study philosophy at university because I wasn't completely sure what i wanted to do i loved theology as an a-level and particularly the ethics element of it so that's why i chose to study philosophy Um, and i got a place at cambridge to do that um, and really enjoyed my time there and uh, yeah spent all of my time there focused on journalism so whenever we were on like holidays i'd kind of intern at different magazines and newspapers um, it wasn't until I left university and, and started working at a newspaper that I'd realised I realized i did not want to be a journalist um, um, and actually I was more interested in social justice issues and writing on them, yes, but just in social justice issues in general. So I started to apply for jobs working for the charity sector and then worked my way up from there.
0: That's great and congrats on going to Cambridge, that's a big move, um, coming from North London as well, so that's that's really that's really great actually uh congrats on that and then I guess yeah somewhere along the line so you wanted to be a journalist and then you've gone through some experiences and you're you're writing you're realizing okay isn't it isn't actually for me you've gone and studied your master's and you've done your doctorate and your doctorate is where you start to develop your the framework right yeah
1: that's right so I yeah I did my I was working at the charity uh, race on the agenda as an administrator while I did my master's in social policy because by that point I'd realized I was quite interested in policy And I hadn't thought about that at all before I didn't really know anything about it. And I was looking at issues like weapon carrying um, and that type of stuff when I was doing my Masters. Um, And then worked in a couple of policy organisations and government organisations and charities, and then started my PhD, and that was looking at uh, violence between young people, different forms of peer-to-peer violence. Um, And originally I was asking questions about whether they were different forms or they were all similar enough that we could just have one response regardless of the type of harm um, in question Um, but by the end of the doctorate um, my main finding was that social workers in particular were struggling to respond to these issues because they were assessing individual children's needs and risks and the capacity of their parents to protect them. When the risks they were facing were in their friendship groups, and um, schools, and public places, and I didn't really understand why social workers were doing that because I wasn't a social worker, but I could see that that's exactly what was happening, and so it meant that, um, yeah, parents were being unduly blamed for what happened to their children, but also young people just remained at risk and kind of safety wasn't being created in the context where the harm was occurring. So the doctorate led to me kind of coining the term contextual safeguarding and proposing that we needed uh, kind of child protection responses that targeted um, contexts and not just individual children and families. And then after the doctorate went on to kind of try and turn that into a framework and test it and develop it, which is what I've been doing ever since. Sure, so contextual safeguarding... um, in a sentence is an approach to safeguarding that assesses and responds to the contexts where young people are at risk of harm, tries to build safety in those contexts. The detail of that is split into four parts, so any type of system, organisation, team or individual practice that does four things. The first thing I've already mentioned targets the contexts where the harm happens and tries to change social conditions of that context, I mean, that harm less likely to happen there. The second thing it does is it does, the, does that thing, but through a lens of child protection and child welfare, not because of crime. So we do have lots of responses to public places, but they're normally focused on trying to reduce crime. And when you focus on trying to reduce crime, you don't always protect children. You might disperse them out of the area, for example, and that might reduce crime, but it doesn't mean those children are any safer. They might be even more at risk because now we don't know where they've gone. They might be staying in someone's flat um, because they still need Wi-Fi and they can't get it outside a fast-food restaurant anymore because they've been told not to go there. So a, a reduction in crime doesn't mean anyone's safer so contextual safeguarding must be focused on children's welfare first. The third element of the approach is that it has to happen in partnership with people who are in those places and spaces so historically child protection is just social workers, policing, health services, sometimes education, kind of responding to children and families. In contextual safeguarding, it would be those people, but it would also be youth workers, housing officers, people that run fast food restaurants, people that manage transport hubs, young people themselves, residents, families, whoever could influence what was happening in the parks. We've seen work with dog walkers, gardeners, different people who are in parks trying to create safety in the park, for example. So depending on the context, you've quite a broad partnership. And the fourth element of contextual safeguarding is that you measure the impact of your work on context and not just on children. So you don't say, oh, we did this intervention and now this child's back in school and they weren't before. Um, you would also say, they're back in school, they weren't before, and they're going back to school because school is now a safe place for them to be. And we understand that the context of the school is safer. So you've measured the, the impact of the response on the context. Otherwise, what we see, are things like children who are unsafe at school, either they're unsafe on the journey to school or they're unsafe when they're in school, from other young people for example and their parents are threatened with a fine for not getting them into school so the children go to school because they, they know their parents can't afford the fine so if you just measured the outcome for the child, they weren't going to school, now they are going to school so the threat to fine was, was a good thing If they're going to school just because they're trying to avoid their parents being fined, it doesn't mean they're any safer. In fact, they could be more at risk because now they're having to go on a journey where there is a threat to their life or they're having to go into a school environment where they're being sexually harassed by other young people. So we have to know that they're going into school because that journey is now safer for them or the school is now safer for them. We need to know we've made a difference to the context where they were unsafe, not just a difference to their behaviour. So that's what we look for in contextual safeguarding. We look for a response that targets context, focusing on child welfare, in partnership with the people who are in that place and measures the impact of the response on a context. And while all of that sounds quite obvious, it's the complete opposite to what we would normally do in um, a child protection response.
0: With that example you were just talking about there and then with the parents being fined and uh, sexual abuse, do you mind expanding a bit more upon that, and maybe, and to expand a bit more upon that story, to talk about how that kind of system has failed, or if it has failed the child, I should say, and how a contextual, a contextual, um, oh my gosh, contextual safeguarding approach can or would have been a better approach to take.
1: Sure. So, in a particular case, I was reviewing a young person was not coming to school on time. He was coming in late every day, um, and then he was coming in late to lessons, and he was also leaving lessons when he was there. And the school had used standard sanctions like detentions and other kind of um, sanctions to try to get him to come in on time, and they hadn't worked. So they contacted Children's Social Care and raised their concerns about him, and it turned out that he had a sibling with a disability. And there was a view that maybe the parents were struggling to get everyone out of the house on time because of this um, challenge they had at home and that he maybe things were a bit chaotic and he was struggling to concentrate in lessons so they did an assessment of the family and um and the family said they didn't think that that was the problem they were aware that he was not wanting to be in school but they said they, were, they didn't have those difficulties but Nonetheless, further support was put into the family to help and, and that didn't change his behaviour. He still came in late to school, he still left lessons. Um, so after a while, there was a threat to fine his family for not getting him into school on time. That is an intervention that can be used. Um, it's parent's duty, um, considered to be a parent's duty, to ensure their children are in education. And So if the parents are not getting their children into education, there can be a decision to fine them. Um, And he knew that his parents couldn't afford that fine, so he came into school on time and stayed in his lessons. He later uh, disclosed to a pastoral worker in the school that he had been coming in late um, every day because, and that, well, well, he was then seriously physically and sexually assaulted by a group of young people. Um, in a community setting but a number of those young people were in his school and a pastoral worker at the school noticed some of his injuries and approached him to try to understand what had happened and he initially made up an excuse and then he did say what had happened. And he said that he'd been coming in late every day because he waited for everyone in school to be in the lessons, in classrooms before he would come into school. And then he would wait for teachers to go into the classrooms before he'd go into them. And then when he was in lessons, he'd use the toilets during lesson time rather than at the break time. Because if he used the lessons in the break time, he was assaulted in the toilets. So school was very unsafe for him. But... He didn't want his parents to be fined, so when that was a threat, he started to come into school, but that meant he was just exposed to risk. Now, in a contextual safeguarding approach, you firstly wouldn't assume that the reason he's not going to school is to do with parenting, which is what happened in this case. You wouldn't target your interventions at parents unless you really identified a reason to do that, and they didn't in that case. You would have listened to the parents and you would have given him more space to say what's happening, maybe do safety mapping with him to say where are your red zones, your unsafe zones, and your green zones, your safe zones, and your amber zones, um, the kind of neutral zones in school or on your journey to school or if they're coming in late. because He may have been coming in late because he was afraid on his journey, so he waited for people to kind of be at college and then travel a bit later. So you do some mapping to give him some space to start to say, I feel unsafe here, I feel safe, here and be curious about that and because that would have then helped you understand that he was unsafe in school and then the interventions would have needed to focus on the school itself either targeting the group of young people who posed a risk of harm to him with interventions to change their behavior as a group and there was a particular group dynamic with one young person leading and a lot of other young people following that behavior you'd also want to understand whether the culture of the school was facilitating that, were there kind of attitudes of staff or what other students that were kind of normalising it and you target your intention there, try to change the culture of the school and make it a safe place for him to be. So in, in a traditional response, we assess parenting and we intervene with the family. In a contextual safeguarding response, we identify which context is relevant, and that might be the family, but it might also be a peer group, a school, or a public place, and then we target at that place But across all of it, it's still social work-led, it's still child protection. What I'm not talking about is increasing policing and criminalisation of friendship groups, for example, but recognising that harm can happen in those settings. And when they do, we need to be able to respond and not expect parents on their own to provide safety for their
0: children. It's one of those stories that people would hear and be probably be very, very surprised that what that was to happen in a school, especially just somewhere where if you're a parent, you would expect your child to be safe. Uh, but then there's numerous examples of where schools have failed children anyways. The most the mo- one that's come out very recently would be the child queue, uh, which happened some time ago, but it's only come to light in recent months. But that's just a stark example of how a child has been failed, um, no context whatsoever. And in this example you've shared as well, and it's probably loads of others, and probably loads that probably haven't even made the news that have happened and probably kept on the wraps that are happening that we don't know about. And when you talk about it, it sounds, because I work in sales, um, and something that we're always taught to do is you don't, walk between meeting and assume that you have the solution for whoever it is you're talking to. You don't walk in there and say, okay, great, nice to meet you, Steve. All right, we've got this amazing product that's going to XYZ here, take it off our hands. It doesn't really work like that. You got to talk to them, find out what their situation is and probably similar to this, find out what their context is. What, you know, what's happening with you guys right now and what do you need, et cetera, et cetera. Seek to understand. You don't just seek to walk in there with a solution within your head. And when you look at it like that, it sounds quite obvious that that is, I mean, it sounds obvious, but I guess in, you know, the way these systems are so complex and so many different moving parts, even though it sounds obvious, it might not always be as easy just to walk in and to apply a framework like that, even though it sounds like it makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we've learned with testing contextual safeguarding, and we've kind of formally been testing it now for about four years, is that just because something's common sense, it doesn't mean it's easy. And um, we're working in a system that assumes when something goes wrong for a child, the fault lies with their parent or caregiver. And so everything about that system needs to be changed for contextual safeguarding to be possible. Even down to the computer systems that are used in a social work department, they're designed to record information about individual children and families. You can't record information about a peer group or a school or a location. The system's not designed to do that. Um, The types of support and interventions that are funded and commissioned, they're all mostly one-to-one support, parenting programs, Um, mentoring programs for individual children, which all have their place, but what we don't have is the equivalent for friendship groups or lots of interventions that can be offered into schools or into parks. So every bit of the system assumes you're going to want to intervene with an individual child and their family. Um, And when you don't, you need to do more. You're kind of upending the system to try to do something that makes more sense. Um, so it, that's why it's taking such a long time. And it's also counterculture, because we see it in, in the media, we see it in general public discussions. If something happens with a child, you often hear people say, well, what were the parents doing? They've got to have been through something in their childhood. They've got to have been through something. And some of those children will have gone through difficulties in their childhoods, and some won't have at all. And regardless, it's not their parent who then stabbed them on the bus or sexually assaulted them at school. That's not who did that thing. So we tend to fixate on parents and carers because that makes us feel better about ourselves. If I think that this happened to this child because their parents weren't doing the right thing, then I feel better about my children because I think I am doing the right thing. If I accept that actually bad things happen to children and you can do as much as you can, your child and something still could go wrong that's a really scary idea no one wants to think that so it is easier for all of us to just blame individuals hold individuals responsible because then it's not about me i don't have a responsibility for this and also it's not going to happen to anyone i care about um whereas in reality it's it's our collective responsibility to raise and create safety for children. This idea that it takes a village is very true and not just relevant in other cultural contexts. It's relevant in our own, but we don't know what that village looks like because we haven't, we're all about individuals, we're all about individual responsibility. Um, And that removes really important safety nets Um, for people to be able to say, actually I'm finding this hard to do on my own. It's really hard to raise a teenager. You go through a lot. You don't know what's going on with them half the time. Who they're talking to. They're out of your line of sight for most of the day. So the idea that then if something happens to them in that eight-hour window where you're at work and they're meant to be in school or on a bus or with their friends, that that is somehow you have caused that. It's very that is nonsensical. But that is how society often views these things.
0: Cool, but then um you know, if anything goes wrong with the child, the first thing, like you said, is culture. Okay, the parents were this, the parents were that, what were the parents doing? When, like even looking at yourself and your upbringing, you know, we've only spoken for, you know, not for so long and there's only so much you can talk about your upbringing, but then with you, like you've had, you know, you've gone through a bereavement when you're young, you've got your family trips and, you know, your family unit or your community unit, all of the, so many different inputs, so many different inputs, yeah that have influenced who you are today. And at different stages of your life, different inputs are gonna have different levels of influence in your life as well. So it's like when you're younger, perhaps maybe your community and your family's gonna be bigger. You get a bit older, you got your peers now in your school, you're spending more time in school than you are at home. Um, you know, there's so many different things that are gonna affect who you are. It's not, you can't solely be on the, of course, parents play a role, but everyone plays a role. Everything plays, society plays a role. Everything plays a role um, and to take all of that context out of things and to look only solely to one input does not make sense because the parents call parents might have played whatever role they've played what role has the community played what role has the school played what role has the peers played what role have the police played what role have I don't know churches community groups whatever they all have an influence on these children's lives and also in the sorry and also in the individual sort of um, context like there and then at that point in time so with me growing up in school, when I was in school, particularly, more secondary school than primary school actually, I used to always get, oh Tevin, Tevin's so quiet, Tevin's this, Tevin's that. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm more of an introverted person for sure, but nobody ever <laughs> throughout my secondary school to time out to ask why. It was always, he's just like that. No, nobody knew what was happening at home. Nobody bothered to ask. Um, and it's just a lack of context, you know, I think, um, you know, maybe the way that institutions especially with our young people good at the future the way these institutions interact and approach young people um probably should be overhauled completely you know with like a a framework that you're, you're advocating for and things like that i think um with um the do you believe that this framework should also be applied so like with the story you told with the young boy that was assaulted in school do you feel like this framework should also be applied to the attackers as well, the ones that committed the assault?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're all children, um, and we need to understand what causes behaviour. It doesn't mean that there's no sanction. I mean, that was, it was a very serious assault, there needed to be a sanction. But if we want sustainable change, and if we want to intervene earlier, then we need a welfare-based response, we have to understand their needs. I would do the almost exact same assessment on, for every child, but then the ones that had obviously committed a harmful offence part of that particularly if they were not under duress they hadn't been exploited to do it of course we need to have kind of some kind of sanction but it's important I'm, I'm a firm believer in restorative forms of justice when we talk to young people and we do that quite a bit particularly in schools around peer to peer sexual harm that happens in schools a lot of young people want a more restorative approach they want um, those that have caused harm to them to understand why that was a problem and they want that person to not do that again that's their kind of concern and um, and the way to stop someone from doing it again is to address the drivers of their behavior um, you know so in in the case that i reviewed with that young man who was assaulted when you looked then at what was going on um, for the people that assaulted him a number of those young people had been bullied previously by the person that led that assault. And to avoid being bullied, they aligned themselves with him. So they had their own experiences of victimisation that had been missed and hadn't been addressed as well. This young person that was leading a lot of this, he had a lot of experiences of community-based violence, was very unsafe in his in public spaces, so he tended to exert power in school because it meant meant he felt better about himself because he felt weak and vulnerable when he was outside of school. And he also had a very poor relationship with the police, as did his family, um, and he had had some very problematic interactions with them where he had been assaulted by the police. So there's all these different things that were going on that required attention. If his experiences in the community had been addressed, he wouldn't have been seeking to exert power in school. If the experiences of bullying that were rife in that school were being addressed, those young people wouldn't have aligned themselves with him. So those were the conditions that meant that this young person then ended up being assaulted. If you take out the bullying in the school, you take out the fractious relationship with policing and his experiences of community violence, you might not get the assault that that young person experienced. And, and just punishing them also doesn't get us away from that happening in the future, so um, it's really important that we seek to create safe environments for all of our young people, um, whether the risk that they then are exposed to kind of leads to them instigating harm against others, being harmed themselves, and a lot of young people are victimised and harming others at the same time when they're experiencing these things. Um, it's very difficult to put all the victims in one place and all the perpetrators in another place. It's just not life. Um, So you have young people, and those young people are human beings. Some of them have been victimized, some of them have victimized others, and some of them experience both those things, but it doesn't define who they are. And so we need a response to those young people and the context in which those young people come to harm and harm others, to try to create safety for as many as possible rather than saying we need this intervention with this child because they're a victim, then we need a perpetrator intervention with this child because they're a perpetrator. Because that defines them as just one thing, um, when actually we have multiple needs and experiences.
0: What's the reception been like from policymakers?
1: Um, The reception to contextual safeguarding to date has been very positive, and I've been quite surprised. And... by the level of take up by local leaders in children's services, but also by government departments, uh, contextual safeguarding um, has been referenced in the um, latest independent review into children's social care, which is kind of the biggest review we've had for a significant amount of time. There's also features in um, has influenced the design of safeguarding guidance in England, and also features in safeguarding guidance in Wales and in Scotland's child protection procedures. So, generally, it's been. The, I, the concept has been welcomed. The ability to implement it still needs a lot of work, and I recently wrote a paper about this. Um, recognition of it is really positive, and I think that's because, as you've already indicated, a lot of it is common sense. If a young person is at risk of serious harm in a, in a public place, why are you not looking at that public place and intervening with it? That's kind of a common sense thing to do. How you go about doing that how you resource it who leads that's where i'm sure tensions will start to emerge over time and we'll need more work to get those things implemented in policy we still don't have a clear policy framework for a lot of this work and some of it still sits more with policing and community safety than it does with social work and safeguarding and that creates a very confusing policy landscape for individual practitioners to then work within. Um, We still, as I mentioned already, operate in a society and in a policy framework that's very behavior-focused, very individual-focused, doesn't support us to measure outcomes for anything more than an individual. A lot of policy will talk about whether or not responses reduce truancy, um, reduce children going missing, increase their employment rates, but it doesn't know anything about the context in which you achieve those. Outcomes, and we would want more, more of that, more about the context that helped children achieve those outcomes. So we have a long way to go. Even though we've come a long way, we still have a long
0: way to go. For sure. Okay, let's um, move on slightly, and let's talk a bit about yourself and your life. What would you say? Yeah what What lessons have has life taught you recently?
1: Oh, recently, oh, it's a tough one. Um. I, I I like a plan. Uh, I'm definitely someone that likes a plan. Um, and in work, I plan everything. Um, but I guess one of the things I've learned, and I'm sure a lot of people learn in different ways over the course of the pandemic, um, is that sometimes things are just out of your control completely. And so I, I've learned more recently that when something is in my control, I have to take that Seriously, and focus my attentions on those things, and everything else I have to kind of let go of um, a little bit. So, I've had to kind of give up the reins um, a bit more uh, recently Um, because you can plan and plan and plan, and things don't go to plan. Um, I lost two pregnancies during the pandemic, I had two ectopic pregnancies and nearly died on one of those occasions, and none of that was in my plan. Um, So, you know. We had our first child very easily, and then it's been very difficult ever since. And, you know, I've now had to undergo treatment in relation to those things. And so all I've been able to control are my physical health, kind of make sure I'm physically fit, nourishing my body, getting enough sleep. Um, What happens to me is not choosing the right doctor, doing kind of the research that I can to choose the right doctor then I have to hand it over to the professionals because I'm not a medical professional. So that's just one example of what I mean by kind of knowing where your limits are in terms of what you can control and and kind of giving over the rest.
0: I'm really sorry to hear about that, Um, but I'm very, mm, thank you for sharing that. I would say I think that level of vulnerability uh, isn't easy to do, Um, but when people hear, I think I'm a big believer of vulnerability it's not always easy, trust me, I, I I very much struggle with it, but when, I think it's one of them ones where you, when you talk to someone, where you talk to someone so directly about things that are so deep and personal, and it really hits someone, um, it just helps people to feel like they're not, not alone, and it can, it really helps people. Um, so, thank you, thank you for sharing that.
1: No worries, I mean, life is complicated, and I think... Often, particularly when you have a, prof- a public profile and, you know, in the world of social media you you know, tweet the work you're doing and all the successes you have, and I tweet frustrations I have as well, but people can kind of have a rose-painted picture of people's lives and everyone's lives are complicated in, in different ways and how we manage those complications are just as important as how we kind of strategize to influence policy. It's all, we're all one and the same, so I've been very open with people about what I've been through and with work colleagues and everything because I just think you don't know what someone else is going through Um, and um, I don't think it can ever be a problem to try to ensure that um, people know that life isn't straightforward um, and we create difference within that mess rather than oh we've been able to achieve this change because our lives are easy. it's just not like that.
0: you, you can go to work or whatever and have a big smile and face and laugh and all of that not knowing you've literally felt like you've had the worst day in your whole life and you you know well, no one's gonna know um which is why i think it's always people to treat always important so is treat people with a level of compassion because you literally do not know what is happening in someone's life um so yeah but no thank you for sharing that that's much appreciated uh what would you say has been the most defining moment of your life so far?
1: Oh my goodness that is a big question. I don't. It's really tough to answer. Most defining moment. Wow. Um I don't know. I mean because there's different ways in which your life is defined, right? So I could like go down the obvious route of becoming a mother. Um it definitely changed my life um for the better, but it changed my life it changed how I balance life, how I do life, what I prioritise, but it doesn't define me. You know, it doesn't define my life and its trajectory. Or when I was um, appointed my professorship, that was quite. A, that's been my latest big turning point. Um, it's definitely changed how I'm viewed, and it's changed the types of requests I get, and it, you know, the access I get to people, to ideas. Um, and it's a culmination of a lot of work, um, and so that currently defines quite a significant proportion of my life, but it doesn't define it all. Um, so I think I don't have a single most significant defining moment, but I definitely do have landmarks where I, um, I don't know, my life I kind of reshaped an element of my life. But I have this. Um, like, I have quite a lot of things my mum kept from when I was little. And I've got this um, book that I made, as like a school project when I was about nine years old. It's called All About Me and You Write About Yourself. And there's a page in the book where I described my personality and it pretty much was the same when I was nine as it is now. I made reference to social justice. I don't know where I got the idea from because I was nine. Um, I talked about a love of dance, a love of music. Um, of family, and I said I didn't like sharing, and all of those things are still pretty accurate. So, I think sometimes the moments in our lives that define us sometimes just bring us home to who we've always been, or enabled us to kind of grow an element of our personality that we um, that has always been there but we haven't had the opportunity to explore uh, rather than kind of reshape um, in a quite a significant way who we are.
0: If you could go back and live one day of your life all over again, what day would you pick?
1: Mm, my goodness. These are tough questions. If I could go back. um, Probably my wedding day because it just goes by so quick and everyone tells you that, um, but you don't you know there's nothing you can do about it at the time like I didn't really eat much of the food I feel like there was lots of people I didn't speak to there were moments where I didn't take it in so potentially that day or maybe the night before I gave birth because that was probably the last night I had a decent night's sleep so I'd really enjoy that sleep in a different kind of a way <laughs> to, um, to how I sleep
0: now. If you could go back and um, just the start of your life and change If you can do some things differently would you go back and do anything differently
1: um hmm. i don't know if i would because you just don't know what the trajectory would have been right if you had changed one of those things I, i would like to encourage myself to be more comfortable in my own skin i mean definitely as a teenager i wasn't i was in a majority white Secondary school, I chemically straightened my hair, relaxed it from the age of about thirteen for a good twenty years. I stopped when I had my son, um, and I wanted to be like all the other girls, and I wasn't. And I didn't really embrace that at all. And when I look back at photos of myself, I didn't see the person I'm seeing in the photographs. I didn't um, have any. I haven't had that much confidence. In my identity I had confidence in my abilities um, but I didn't have confidence in my kind of identity so I would encourage me to embrace and explore that more but I think that would probably be the case for a lot of teenagers for various reasons because a lot of teenagers want to be part of something um, and be in a group and if there's something about you that means you're slightly out with that can be quite difficult as a teenager and, and and that, I definitely
0: experienced that. Um, but it's not really a, an individual thing I would do differently. I think, I, I'm, I'm a believer um, somewhat that life is sort of like you're on a journey just to rediscover yourself. So like you spoke about, if you read in your book that you've done when you're nine years old and realizing, oh, wow, this is all true. Most of it is true today. Um, it's always been there. I feel that we're born in like our purest states and then we go through life and then a lot of us, lose our ways I mean you know we're not it and then yeah a lot of us lose our ways and then just through life and through experience it's about trying to find that inner child again it's about trying to come back to home you know um which it sounds like you've done or are doing anyways um that identity piece is quite powerful you're saying because when you're young you you know you start to straighten your hair and etc cetera, etc cetera, but now you've come to a place where you're more confident in who you are um and I think that 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 comes with a level of you know of, of peace um, help you be a lot more happy for sure um, and yeah I feel like a lot of us are on that sort of a journey even if we don't know it what's the next chapter in your story going to look like
1: well I, I mean I hope to have a bit of a breath um, in my next chapter um, maybe take a bit more leave go on some holidays and, and enjoy life a little bit Um not that I haven't been, but it's been quite fast paced. Um, and my um, in my new role at Durham in my professorship, I work with a much smaller team. And um, we've just finished a load of projects and we have a much smaller set of projects that we're working on now. So my work feels just as impactful, but much more contained. Um, and I'm going to be doing more teaching than I have been previously and supporting other PhD students. So I'm looking forward to a slightly different pace of work and um, yeah just having a little a, a kind of a chapter where you do a bit more of a stock take rather than trying to uh, kind of innovate and do lots of new things. But I'm not very good at that. I'm always starting new things. I have a book coming out in um, September. I'm submitting a book manuscript with a colleague. We've been editing a book um, that manuscript gets submitted in September will be out next year and I'm just discussing another book with another colleague and I said I wasn't going to write another book after my last one and that's three others so I'm not very good at slowing down but I am going to try and have a slightly slower pace in this next chapter of life.
0: And I'm guessing are those books going to be on contextual safeguarding?
1: They are um, the next one is on uh, just on the evidence base around risks outside of the family um, and what we've learned internationally about the types of responses we need. And the editor collection I submit in September with my colleague Jenny Lloyd is the findings from the latest round of testing and kind of what we've learned about contextual safeguarding and where we think the work's going. And in um, very early stage discussions about the third book, so I won't give that one away too soon.
0: All right, but well, that's that uh, nice one. Thank you so much for coming on. Really, really enjoyed speaking with you today. Yeah. Oh, lovely speaking with you have you got anything that you want to say in closing and also if people wanted to keep up to date with yourself and what you're doing um how can they do so
1: sure i have nothing really to add it's been really enjoyable thanks for taking me on a trip down memory lane um I think uh, if you want to follow me, the best place to follow me is on Twitter, um, just Carleen Furman. You'll be able to find me there. That's where I post all of my work. I do have an Instagram, Prof Carleen Furman, but I don't use it as much as my Twitter account.
0: Really, really appreciate you coming, you know, sharing your story in such an authentic and vulnerable manner. So thank you so much. Much appreciated. But that's that for now. That was 1000 Voices. This is Carleen Furman. And until next time, people, we're out okay and that's done season two episode one done and dusted all wrapped up amazing interviews so many takeaways that we can apply in our own lives it'll be great to hear from the community let me know what you thought about this interview what some of your key takeaways were please do leave us a comment on our social media pages and or whatever platform you're listening to this on right now let us know what you thought about this Also, if you haven't already, please do leave us a review in your preferred podcasting platform. It really, really helps us in trying to amplify the stories of these amazing people that we have in the podcast. Next week, as always, the new podcast episode will be released on Tuesday. The full YouTube video will follow a few days afterwards. So follow us on our social media pages. We keep you up to date with everything over there. And we'll drop a few little snippets from the upcoming episode there as well. So stay tuned. That's that for now, people. Thank you for tuning in. This is 1000 Voices and for now, we're out.